Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. I am your host, J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. And this is the genuine, honest end of an era, as this is the final episode, the actual final episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast. And I think we've all known this is coming for quite a while, and it was my fault, really. I was leaving the door open just in case some sort of creative flame came back to me and the show came roaring back to a life, and I've tried that several times. It's just not going to happen. And as 2020 came closer and closer and the Fantastic Cast wrapped up, I really started to think maybe I should crap or get off the pot. And in this instance, I am getting off the pot. Now, I'm not going to just pop in here and say, hey, show's over. See you later. I'm going to leave you with a little something something before I go. Several months back, I was slated to bring the show out of mothballs on November 3rd. Nobody noticed it didn't come back. Nobody said anything. But I had produced two full episodes by the time that date came and went. But uh, just since they are there, and since this is the final episode, I'm going to present those two episodes back to back in this one drop. So as you are listening, you will hear the credits begin, the credits end, and then another set of credits. I'm not going to touch the episodes. They're going to be full and just as I left them several months ago, complete. So they'll be back to back, credits and all. And they're there for your listening pleasure. They're not meant to be necessarily the best finale I could produce, but at the same time, it was time to really come forward and say, hey, this era is over. And for those of you that are wondering if I'm going to do a final episode for the Dave Cave Batman podcast, I am actually not. And the reason is nobody actually listens to that show. I can see the downloads on that show. They're very low. Basically, an episode comes out and it drops like a weight So I'm not going to bother saying that if you want to pass the word along, fantastic. But I don't have the relationship with those listeners that I do with listeners of Dave's Daredevil podcast. And inspired by the Fantasticast's upfront uh, finale, and I'm definitely, you know, following their lead, I wanted to go ahead and close this chapter between us. I don't believe that I am done podcasting. Uh, I don't know what the next steps are. I really do want to get back into the scheme of things. But at the same time, this show has, it's run its course for me. I've said what I wanted to say about Daredevil. Now, knowing the old weeder luck, I'll wake up tomorrow with a whole new volume of stuff to say. I don't know if that's going to be the next step. I have no idea what's next, but I will be back in some way, shape, or form this year. But I wanted to be a little bit honest with you as far as why the show went through the turmoil it did. A lot of it was once I got sick, and that was with the pneumonia I went through a couple years ago, the show kind of sputtered for a bit, and it became to me damaged goods. I had suddenly stopped producing a weekly show, and this thing became really scatterbrained. And when something goes off the rails that bad, you start trying things like a generalized podcast, DDP, Dave Does Podcasts. In the end, I was never able to get the show back into something I was really wanting it to be, and it just, it never felt quite right again after that. And there was some time where it was a loveless marriage, there was some time where it was just not something I wanted to do at all, I didn't even want to look at the character of Daredevil. Then there were times I felt really guilty for not doing the show and not having that creative drive, even feeling really bad staring at a Daredevil figure in Walgreens one night. It was awkward times on aisle nine. But ultimately, I do feel like I I went on a journey, at least with this character, in the years that I've done this show, off and on. And I'm hoping I took you on a journey, too. I do check the downloads from time to time. I see that the show is still getting frequent downloads for the backlog, so I definitely appreciate that. And as much as I would love to come in and say, hey, guys, let's get the show going and it goes forward as normal, at least in terms of it being Dave's Daredevil podcast, that's not going to happen. I still love the character of Daredevil. I'll be honest with you. I'm reading the Chip Zarsky run, and it is fantastic. 
But at the same time, I at this point, I don't want this show to continue. This show is still Damaged Goods, and I, I have no idea what's next, but hopefully you'll join me with it. So just to summarize, this is the end of the road for Dave's Daredevil podcast. I want to thank each and every one of you, even with the good times and the bad times with this show, you have all made this a great experience. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. When I first started this show, I wasn't clear on the direction I wanted to take. I didn't know what I wanted to say about the character. At least in podcast form, I had a great story outline. And, you know... It took me somewhere I wasn't prepared to go. It was something where people really got my ideas with the character and they got on board with the character being more than what he is. One of the greatest compliments I've ever gotten with this show was people saying, you know, I wasn't really into this character, but your enthusiasm turned that around. And as I said up front in the first episode, that was not my intention, but by golly, if it's a side effect, I'm proud of that. So I'm going to sign off now. Of course, I've got the two episodes, so you don't have to go anywhere. You're going to have about an hour's worth of material here. But thank you all, and, you know, never, ever forget that justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. Thank you all. And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, a proud part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. I am your host, J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. And this is the show where I read Daredevil comics, enjoy Daredevil comics, with a few exceptions, and talk about Daredevil comics. And this show is dropping on the six-year anniversary of the very first episode, literally to the day. In fact, releases will be actually following the original schedule at least till the end of February. Thanks, Leap Year. And the plan is to release weekly up until summer break, which I expect to occur sometime in July for the listeners, and then take a hiatus and then come back and proceed after that. I'm not planning out every episode for this cycle, but I can say that this and the following 10 episodes will be devoted to the Carl Kiesel and Carrie Nord run on Daredevil, and then who knows what. I'll probably do some random picks from Daredevil Comics, but for now, the next sequence of episodes is all I've chosen books for. I know what you're going to say, and you're right. You're right. Dave, you just came back from a summer vacation, and a vacation you went on early to boot. You left us with a cliffhanger, and you're not going to pick up with the next chapter? Nope. The relevant bit of that storyline was that Black Widow became an Avenger, which was a huge relevant step in establishing Natasha as a hero in her own right, rather than a pariah. And that was the entire reason I covered the issues when I opened up the second part of that in Avengers number 111. The first page has Magneto making Scarlet Witch dance. I looked right at it and said, no, negative. Instead, this episode, we're opening up the first issue of the Carl Kiesel and Carrie Nord run on Daredevil, as I mentioned earlier, and I am not even sorry. But to set us up for what we're about to go into, Daredevil as a title had been through some really rough, odd times. After the Fall from Grace story, Matt was believed to be dead. He wore this black and red costume for a while and went under the name, and I cannot make this up, he went under the name Jack Batlin. Matt was found, Foggy found out his secret, he reunited with Karen Page, which is a very streamlined setup for our issue here, but it definitely works perfectly. So our issue this time is Daredevil number 353, the June 1996 issue, with a cover by Kerry Nord and Matthew Ryan. 
On the cover, we see this big full moon in the background, and Daredevil's being choked with a chain by the monstrous, super strong Mr. Hyde, and it's not looking good for our horned hero. On one hand, I never cared for this version of the Daredevil logo. It seems a bit less bounding, I guess, than the original logo. A little less superheroic and fun. A little bit more Photoshop, I guess. And the Marvel trade dress, by the way, is bad. It's a 90 CGI, so the Daredevil logo's in bad three-dimensional CGI, like you would get in a computer screensaver or something. It was it was a phase for all the Marvel books at this time. Now to the rest of the cover, I love the rest of this. Nord is the heir apparent to Gene Colan, in my opinion. He gets the mood, the staging, and elements like fog that made Colan's Daredevil work definitive. And this cover just screams, read me, which we're going to do. We're going to look at the story inside entitled The Devil's Work, written by Carl Kiesel, penciled by Kerry Nord, with inks by Matthew Ryan, letters by James Novak, and colors by Christy Scheel. And we open with Daredevil confronting a couple intent on killing themselves with a grenade and a handgun, and the man without fear disarms them. Then he pushes them off the roof. He saves them, but having faced death, they no longer want any part of it. Daredevil promises to collect a favor from them someday before leaving. Meanwhile, Foggy Nelson is standing in court stalling when Matt arrives, causing a sensation since he is supposed to be dead and all. Nelson and Murdoch win their case big time, and when they get back to the office, Foggy confronts Matt on keeping his secret from his best friend. The duo are stunned to receive an invitation for drinks from Rosalind Sharp, the toughest lawyer in Boston, but Foggy seems a bit more stunned than Matt. Later, Matt and Karen Page talk about the state of things, with Karen trying to figure out a direction for herself. She knows she does not want to be a secretary or an actress. Those didn't work out last time. So she's trying to seek out a niche for herself. And then even later, Matt is swinging around his Daredevil when he hears the sound of a giant Hulk-like beast coming from a warehouse. But it isn't the Hulk that Daredevil finds. It's the villainous Mr. Hyde, and Daredevil engages Mr. Hyde, but gets distracted by the dead body of a teenage girl. Daredevil defeats Mr. Hyde, though not easily, by using a nerve center that cuts off his air supply. But when Mr. Hyde surrenders to the police, he dares them to prove that he killed the girl inside the warehouse. And we end with Matt and Foggy arriving late to meet Rosalind Sharp and brushing with Misty Knight on the way in. Sharp offers the lawyers a partnership in her forthcoming New York firm, which Foggy immediately accepts for his own reasons. Matt is hesitant, but Rosalind points out that without Matt, Foggy won't get the partnership. And the curtain drops with that choice on Matt's head. And with that, we will take a quick podcast promo break, and then I will be back to discuss Daredevil number 353. Be right back after this. Come in, Aaron Moss, codename Head. I have an important mission for you, son. I need you to podcast about G.I. Joe, a real American hero, the comic book series previously published for Marvel Comics, currently being paid out by IDW. Um, which issues, uh, General Hawk? Issues? Well, son, you're going to cover the entire run, plus the yearbooks, special missions, order battle, everything, along with the cartoon. Wowzer, sir. That's a mighty large mission. That's why I'm assigning you several other Joes as they're available to help. And uh, how do I report my findings? Monthly at our main site, gijoe.headspeaks.com, on iTunes, and Stitch Radio. Submit your report under G.I. Joe, a real American headcast. Uh, anything else, sir? You can get further information on the social medias, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, all under G.I. Joe, a real American headcast. Dismissed, soldier. Yep. Yes, sir. Now I know. And knowing is half the battle. Yo, Joe. And we are back. I'm going to open up the first page here and just say this is probably one of the very best all-time opening pages to a Daredevil comic ever. At least in the top ten, if not in the top five, because we have Daredevil's face and Daredevil saying, trust me, with a caption that says, said the devil. So trust me, said the devil, which is immediately intriguing and funny. 
and immediately makes you want to read what's going on. Because it reveals nothing about what's happening other than something is happening. And of course, the next step is to find out exactly what that is. So it dragged me in first page out. In this page, the close-up of Daredevil's face kind of reveals what works for Nord's Daredevil. It comes down to the eyes. The mask is a lot more form-fitting to Matt's face, clinging to it, and the lenses are more, basically look like contact lenses. So you're actually seeing the eyeball, the eyelids, the face is actually very clearly displayed. So we feel more personally drawn to him. He's a human being there, and there is a sense of connection to it. And that works all the way through this run, because it also helps with expressions and generally painting this as a human being in a devil costume. It works so well versus the normal goggle-like lenses we see that cover the entire face, where we don't really get a sense of what's going on behind Matt's eyes. Also, the biggest thing I will say to Carrie Nord, and you'll probably hear me say this multiple times, is that his use of shadows on Daredevil, which to me is the secret of making a good-looking Daredevil comic, his use of shadows is at Gene Colan's level. Of course, when we dive into the scene, we have Gwen and Artie who want to kill themselves with a gun and a grenade. And I'm trying to figure out exactly the specifics here of what's going on. For example, are they trying to do some sort of suicide pact? Or is this some sort of statement? Because I know the building is, is abandoned. So blowing themselves up on it would cause a fire, probably cause some sort of media sensation for like 10 minutes. Either way, we never really find out because Daredevil casually stops them with quick planned moves. Here, hold my billy club and it knocks the grenade out of his hand. It's very smooth and psychologically proficient because the first thing Matt does is put this couple at ease. Essentially saying, no, no, I don't want to stop you, but that's exactly what he's doing. And you know what? The moment I knew this run was specifically made for me happens when Matt is trying to get rid of the grenade and simply says, some days you can't get rid of a grenade. I'm a simple man. I love tacos. I love bacon. And I love Batman, the series references from the 60s. And this has, well, no tacos or bacon, but that's completely on me. But it has a Batman 66 reference. Making references to that show is like having sweet nothings whispered in my ear. So the next thing Daredevil does after disarming them and getting rid of the grenade is push them off the roof. Now, he's saying, I'm not going to save you. Here, you can die this way. And Gwen starts saying, not like this, not like this. Now we're getting choosy about suicide? And it kind of sells to me that this was eh, not necessarily a call for help, but a, a call for being heard. And of course, Daredevil senses, well, he hears everything. So he's the ideal person for having heard this couple in multiple levels. For them, the important part was not the death, because when you're a pancake on a sidewalk, it doesn't speak as loudly. For them, it's a matter of change, of wanting to really push what's happening with society in a different direction. And Matt, having heard this conversation, having heard this couple and what they're really trying to say and do intervenes and actually gives them a new direction. So he pushes them off, grabs them with the billy club and swings them to another building. And they're like, oh, good. I'm glad you saw the car. That could have been bad. And he says, I didn't see the car. And I think literally, of course, he's being blind and making a joke. But I really don't think he saw the car because it almost took them out. This also means that Matt is leaping without looking a little bit more. He's a little bit more swashbuckling than he has been in a while, which is something that is praised highly in Mark Wade's run, especially by me. And I agree with that. But it actually happened here first, and it's a little bit more rooted in the character than we might think, because he does have a swashbuckling background. But they're saved, and they're not going to try it again, and Daredevil tells the couple that he's going to collect a favor someday. Let's be honest, owing the devil is never, ever good. And this borrows a bit from the Shadow, who would have uh, people owe him favors and be part of his little army. But actually, I think it would have been a really nice beginning of a trend if themed correctly to him and used properly. I think this could have been a neat idea to go back to some of these people we see here and there and use them in different contexts and stories down the road. But that's a fantastic opening, gets our attention, and then we move into the courtroom. And Matt is quite the sensation. He's the man that took the kingpin down, 
with issue number 300. And I don't want to go too far into that because eventually I'll probably cover that. But essentially, to say it generally, it was a reversal from Born Again and a bit of a mission statement as well, saying that we're not going to do the same thing. Kingpin's not the main villain anymore. We've moved beyond that to something different. And I like that Kiesel is putting things up front. He's also making a blatant Lois Lane reference as she makes a cameo calling into Perry. And I think that toes the line and kind of takes the reader out of it a bit. But it is at least funny enough. And of course, Kiesel was fresh from the Superman offices. He'd been working on the Superboy ongoing. So it kind of works as a joke if you're in the know. But if you're just a general reader, Lois Lane being in there might throw you completely off. Kind of a dangerous game to play, but kind of also in theme with Daredevil being a little bit more swashbuckling and daring. And one of my favorite scenes in this issue comes between Matt and Foggy talking. Because you know I love the Matt and Foggy bromance. And for several things, Matt says he didn't know if he was even going to show up to court until that very morning. He's making choices differently now. And to be honest with you, for most of the 80s and 90s up to this point, Daredevil was basically getting dragged through the mud. Post-board again with the critical and commercial success of that caused Daredevil to go through this cycle where he would be destroyed, rebuilt and destroyed, rebuilt and destroyed over and over, rinse, lather, repeat. And I think the challenge of any oncoming writer was how can I destroy Matt Murdock differently? Well, Kiesel's obviously doing things a little bit differently. And Daredevil is kind of in that frame of mind where there's no kingpin over my head. A lot of this has passed me by. I am now rebuilt and rebuilt better. There's no specter over my head. It's a soft reboot to the character as well. But that's not necessarily the only reason I like this particular scene. It's something that Matt says that proves to me without a doubt that Kiesel knows Daredevil. He knows exactly who this guy is. And it's Matt's line that says, I'm an endless contradiction that would never stand up to cross-examination. And that hit me right square in the chest because I'm somebody who has cross-examined Daredevil extensively. And this is the most concise and accurate statement anybody could make about the character. Yes, he's a complete contradiction. And he now we know he realizes it, which makes a big difference. There's also for Matt an acceptance of that contradiction, which speaks to me loudly because at least he knows what he's doing now. And he knows it doesn't entirely make sense outside of his own head and sometimes not even within his own head. Matt has accepted what I know and what you know about the character that every time the character becomes clear, every time you get Matt Murdock, something comes along and he becomes hazy again. And he's just so prismatic. He's always existing in this realm of blurred lines. Matt stating this not only shows the acceptance of that, it shows the book's acceptance of that. Yes, this is going to be the status quo going on. Now, what else can we do? We've played with this so much through the Nascenti run and the DG Chinchester run and the Denny O'Neill run. Now, we've accepted this. Let's move forward. And, you know, making that statement, the idea of moving forward, it begs the question of, has the book been in some sort of cycle of circular storytelling? Because I don't want to bash on the Nascenti run. I love the Nascenti run. I don't want to bash on Chinchester's run. But at the same time, yeah, there's been some degree of staying within the safe parameters of let's destroy Matt, let's rebuild Matt. And in the midst of the 90s, when that whole gritty, dark theme thing was happening, to have a book saying, yeah, that happened, I'm ready to move forward. The idea of moving forward excites me. Kind of like somebody accepting that they may always have a fear of heights. Once you accept that, it's just a matter of how do I move on now? That's, that's a done deal. I can't do anything about it. What do I do with my life now that I know I have a fear of heights? What are the things I'm good at? And that's where we find Matt, and that's where we find the title overall. But still, this conversation continues with Matt explaining his blindness to Foggy again, which gives the reader a nice insight, but it also gives the fact that, well, Matt didn't tell Foggy. He actually literally didn't tell him. Foggy found out. He wasn't told. I want to clarify that. And frankly, you know me, 
Foggy deserves better, but Foggy is bitter, and I do not blame him for that. I'm still bitter about this. And Matt tries the defense that, hey, I didn't tell my dad either. A, his dad kind of found out, but we're going to get to that. B, he omits the fact that he told Karen. He went to Vermont to tell Karen. Like, took a road trip just to reveal his secret when Foggy's right in the next room. And that kind of made me think about why Matt keeps certain secrets. Why did Matt keep the secret from his dad? Now, we did get a retcon from Stick saying you need to keep the secret for whatever Stick's reasons were. There's a big war coming. Now, Matt is letting his dad worry when you think about it as a child that he could do all of this, that he had the radar sense, that he was competent and could, quote unquote, see. But Jack went through many years thinking that Matt was helpless and needed to be protected. And that made Jack make some decisions that probably weren't the best in in the thought process being that he was going to protect his blind son. Now, canonically, Jack found out in Daredevil Minus One, which was when he dropped Matt off at college. Matt went to a diner and held his own in a fight. Jack was able to see it and realized, hey, my son's special. There's something more to him and he's going to be perfectly fine. But up to that point, from Matt's early teenage years, Jack was, well, he was making bad decisions and those bad decisions centered on Matt. Keeping the secret from Jack put Jack on the path, and that path ended up with him making a decision in the ring that would result in his death later. And again, there are retcons with Maggie saying keep the secret, with Stick saying keep the secret, but in the original canonical version, Matt kept the secret for his own reasons. Bear in mind, at the age that we're talking about, Matt was not Daredevil. He did not have a dual identity. It was him and Jack Murdoch against the world, and Matt kept the most precious secret from Jack for no good reason other than his own paranoia and maybe his own ego. As far as Foggy goes, I kind of get why he would keep the secret in the early days, because it would also put Foggy in a bad position being his partner-in-law and realizing that his friend is a vigilante, and yes, that continues to put Foggy in a bad position. But if you're going to tell Karen Page, who is the secretary and just as culpable, working at the same law firm, tell your boy Foggy. Foggy would keep the secret. Foggy is his best friend. He's there through it all. Karen, on the other hand, I mean, she's had some rough spots. She sold the secret. I mean, you get the idea. What it comes down to is Matt doesn't make good decisions sometimes. Because before Foggy found out, Karen knew. Heather Glynn knew. I mean, I think you're seeing the, the pattern here. Matt likes to tell his secrets to his girlfriends is what I'm coming down to. And I know Ben Urich knows the secret, but that's because Ben Urich figured it out on his own. Which kind of shows the other side of the coin with this secret keeping thing. Foggy is not dumb. He could have pieced it together and yet didn't. Willingly or unwillingly, he was unable to put the pieces together that were right in front of his face. So while Matt is far from blameless in not telling his friend, he also realizes that, yeah, this was a pretty good out for us. Anyway, let me jump off my soapbox here. We have Rosalind Razor Sharp. She's not just a high-profile lawyer with a strong reputation, although she is definitely that. She'll be a new cast member, and she's so much more than that for Foggy. For those that don't know, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag, but Rosalind Sharp is going to be very, very important to Foggy. And then we have Karen Page. We were talking about her a moment ago. She has been all over the place from Born Again till now. She's been a, a struggle to place in a strong role in the book. She's had some phenomenal moments, but for the most part, she's been very oddly placed. She's not really good unless she's tethered to Matt, and that's not good for a character. It doesn't do well to have a character that is only interesting when the main character is around. And I love that Kiesel is totally calling this out. He states it quite blatantly that she needs a direction. She needs a role in the book. We can't have her simply being Matt's girlfriend or being the damsel in distress. There's more to this character. And I think Kiesel nails that, that yes, we can do more with Karen Page. But then we come to the big bad in the issue, Mr. Hyde, Calvin Zabo, 
and I think we've talked about him before, but he literally recreated the serum from Robert Louis Stevenson's Jekyll and Hyde. So he's kind of like a Dark Hulk. Man's most base inhibitions are gone. His most bestial primal concepts are at display for this guy. And he's super strong to boot. So if you're looking for the worst of the worst in humanity, Mr. Hyde would represent it. And Hyde, I mean, this guy has gone toe-to-toe with the mighty Thor. He's not a lightweight. And in this, Matt is quipping up a storm. So it actually becomes a fun fight to some extent until it gets dark. He talks about Hyde. And he's saying, I'm calling out your name, not saying run and hide. And he makes a joke about the superhero review board busting him down to a kid's sidekick. And then everything stops being funny when Daredevil finds the dead girl. And she's definitely dead and she's definitely murdered. But not everything is what you would think it is here. Can you say subplot? And Hyde says that the girl was his to do with as he pleases. Remember, this represents man's most depraved nature. People are not property. Your friends, your spouses, they are not your property. They are not there to serve you. Only if you're an egomaniac would you think that. And I think that speaks to what Hyde is, which is that representation of man's worst elements. But I love that Daredevil takes him down. Daredevil hits this nerve center, which causes the lungs and diaphragm to seize up, which reminds us that bigger isn't always better. That even in his size and his strength and his ferocity, there are still the same nerve centers and same needs physically that we have, namely breathing. This is around the time that Captain America was able to judo the Hulk because the nerves remain the same. And I love that kind of consistency to the physiology of these mutated people. And then we get the dare from Mr. Hyde, you'll never prove that I killed the girl. That's what I call the taunt and haunt. It's these words that will stay with Matt. And then it's going to lead to an awesome story to come. I don't want to get too far into it. But the fact that he dares him is so on point. Yes, a little on the nose. But given the severity of the situation, you can see why Matt would be pulled into this. And he will be, just to spoil ahead a little bit. And then we have Matt and Foggy getting to the meeting late. And they brush past Misty Knight, which she's a detective. You've probably seen her on Luke Cage. We're going to get into her later. I don't want to focus on that, just to mention it. And Foggy suggests that they have this cab had a flat tire excuse. Something that is standing out in this is that he's more nervous than usual to meet Rosalind Sharp, which wouldn't seem completely out of place because she is, again, a high-profile lawyer. But again, there are reasons that I keep calling out. And Rosalind Sharp, the design for her looks exactly on point. She's got this white streak of hair like Cruella DeVille. And she's in this power suit. She looks exactly like you would think a high-profile lawyer would look. And she exudes power. I can see why she would be completely intimidating. Add to that that she totally calls out the flat tire excuse before Foggy can give it. And you know she's somebody who is in control at all times. And there's going to be scenes where Rosalind Sharp becomes one of the best pseudo-villains in this book. Although I don't think pseudo-villain is right. I think she's sort of an antagonist without being a villain. You cannot manipulate her. She's somebody that can't BS. She holds all the cards all the time. And I want to say a few things that stand out about Rosalind's offer. One, it comes out of nowhere. But A, Foggy commits immediately. No consulting Matt. All right, I'll do it. Which is a bold statement. It's very out of character for our main man, Foggy, who we normally know as being fairly demure and not necessarily one to take risks. B, Foggy is still in Matt's shadow. Rosalind wants Matt. She's taking Foggy as a bargaining ship, but she wants Matt because Matt is the dynamic one. Oddly enough, Rosalind is falling prey to one of the most widely used misconceptions of the Nelson and Murdoch team. Yes, Matt is dynamic, but Foggy is the brains. Foggy is the research. Matt looks great arguing in court, but Foggy has supplied him with all of the knowledge that he needs, the bedrock to his arguments. In short, you cannot dismiss Foggy Nelson's contributions to Nelson and Murdoch. His name is first on the masthead, after all. And then Rosalind gives this choice, and I think this is one of the better cliffhangers I've seen. 
And the reason is this manipulation from Rosalind is kind of key to the fact that Matt's main reason for not wanting to partner up is being able to come and go as Daredevil. That means the concept of Daredevil and wanting to be Daredevil is holding Matt back and by proxy foggy in this instance. So if Matt wants to not join up and stay in their sort of mid-level law firm, it's because he wants to be Daredevil, which is fine for Matt. He's able to sacrifice himself. That's a that's a decision he can make for himself, but he doesn't have the right to do that for Foggy. And Matt has to face directly that this decision could take away the opportunity for Foggy. So Matt is very much on the spot at this point, and in a way that really calls out the, the discussion from earlier in the issue between Matt and Foggy. So that remains tight. Matt is already reeling from several things that have been perfectly set up in this issue. One, he's the more dynamic face, and right now he's a pseudo-celebrity. So the law firm kind of hinges on his popularity and his charm. Two, the partnership has just been re-established after years, and Matt has come back from the quote-unquote dead. And two, Matt has been lying to Foggy for years, and there have been opportunities like this along the way that he turned down being Daredevil, but really didn't have the context for Foggy that this was the reason. With the secret out, Foggy now knows why he's doing it, and that really puts Matt in a position where he has to face his BS. So Matt is very, very much on the spot here, and in a big way, and this is such an unconventional cliffhanger because it's not super heroics. It's not battling a villain and Daredevil's in trouble. Matt has to face himself, and he has to face the trap that he's built for himself as a lawyer in his real life, and that makes this a very compelling cliffhanger. Let's move into our final verdict here. Going into this, I thought about the fundamentals of, of Daredevil and what I would give as far as edicts to a writer coming into the book for the first time. First off, Matt is blind. Let's never forget that. Some writers do, but Matt is blind. Two, building off of that, Matt's strengths double as his weaknesses. They are one and the same. His senses give him great abilities and great prowess, but they can be his weaknesses and come back. And that also extends to his supporting cast. Karen and Foggy, yes, they really lift him up. They are good friends, and more than that in Karen's case. But they are liabilities to his superhero role. Three, Foggy is Matt's true love. It's it's true. It's written. It's scripture. This bromance is the key to Daredevil. Always use this bromance whenever you get the chance. Four, Daredevil is not a bruiser. He's a fighter, yes, and he will get down and dirty, but he's smart. He's master of his domain at all times, and he uses his brain more than his fists, and never ever forget that he is not just a bruiser. But five, Matt is constantly straddling an ethical and moral fence at any given time. He's right in the middle, and when he's straddling that fence, it's made of barbed wire. So these would be the five precepts, I would say, to any oncoming writer to Daredevil. Use these five things, and this gets it right. Right out of the gate, it has all of this in here. Yes, it's a very different take than previous writers, but no less valid. And after years of destroying him again and again, he's allowed to be Daredevil and figure out what that really means. And this run, like Mark Wade's, gets touted as something lighter, but it's not lighter fare. Yes, this runs contrary to the 90s aesthetic and tone. It bucks the trends with a character that should be right at home with dark and gritty ideas. And don't get me wrong, you can easily and readily do dark and gritty Daredevil stories. But taking this tone with a character that's at home with himself, that is sort of enjoying being him, well, that is proving the versatility of this character and the flexibility of, of things you can do with Daredevil. I like the humor, but Daredevil's never really been without humor. Because when you break down the concept, a blind man going out and playing superhero is kind of built with inherent humor in it. This manages to balance the Silver Age fun and swashbuckling with some bronze and 90s style that kind of gets a right balance for this. It's not filler. It is not light fare. It's very compelling. It's very character-centric. 
but it's not necessarily overwhelmingly dark. I think a lot of readers take upbeat to be cartoony. No, this is not a SpongeBob version of Daredevil. It's a comic that's at home with its own concept and allowing that concept to be a little bit more free range. I don't know if there's a Daredevil for every mood. I don't think that's quite true, but this manages to make a really good mix of the layers of the character. And frankly, Carrie Nord's art is gorgeous throughout, and you're going to see a lot more great Carrie Nord art. This guy is so underrated. If you look at some of his Conan work with Dark Horse, this guy is amazing and is full of nothing but potential. And it shows in his Daredevil work. So with this first issue of the run out of the way, I gotta say I'm psyched for the next issue, which of course brings us to the end of the episode. Next episode, the man without fear meets up with Spider-Man, but maybe not the Spider-Man you're thinking of. And things go about as smoothly as you might expect. Actually smoother, to be honest with you. But that is in one week. Until then, remember, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel Comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. This show earns no money and exists for entertainment purposes only. It's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, a proud part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. I am your host, J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. And this is the podcast where I read and talk about comics starring Marvel Comics, Blind Lawyer by Day, Superhero by Night, Daredevil. This time around, we pick up with the second issue of the Carl Kiesel and Carrie Nord run on the title, and we left off with an interesting cliffhanger last time. 
Rosalind Sharp, one of the toughest lawyers in the world, offered Matt and Foggy partnerships in her new high-profile New York firm. While Foggy accepted immediately, Matt was hesitant since the move would interfere with his being a masked crusader and all. But Sharp explained to Matt that it is him she wants. No Matt, no partnership for Foggy, and so Matt was left with a choice. Also, Daredevil went up against the villainous Mr. Hyde, and a dead girl was found at the scene, with Mr. Hyde daring police and Daredevil to prove that he killed her. And so, we pick up the story threads with Daredevil number 354, the July 1996 issue. We have a cover by Carrie Nord, inked by Matthew Ryan, with Daredevil crouching on a ledge, recoiling in shock as the red light of the spider signal illuminates him and the wall behind him. This cover is absolutely brilliant, a definite standout. And I've got to give the cover to the colors. The red and black stand out, and the cover has been really a favorite of mine for a long, long time. It just nails it, and it gives you the strictest idea of enough said. Spider-Man's here. And inside this cover is a story entitled Charming Devils, written by Carl Kiesel, penciled by Kerry Nord and Rick Leonardi for some pages, inked by Matthew Ryan, lettered by Michael Higgins, and colored by Christy Scheel. And we open with Daredevil swinging around New York, pondering Rosalind Sharp's offer and trying to clear his head. Daredevil gets back to the offices of Nelson and Murdoch, where Foggy is shocked to see Matt hanging out in his costume sans mask. The two talk a bit about the offer, with Foggy saying that it was Rosalind Sharp that inspired him to become a lawyer. Hmm? Daredevil gets his mask back on just as Liz Osborne stops by. Daredevil leaves to get lunch as Matt Murdock as Foggy and Liz do the same, separately, of course. Over lunch, Karen says that she hasn't found a job, but her heart skips a beat. She's lying and Matt can tell. Lunch is interrupted when Ben Yurick and Peter Parker stop by to chat and the Spider-Man swings overhead. Yes, you heard that right. Since that is so weird, Matt takes off to check this out as Ben, Peter, and Karen all cover for Matt's secret. Because they all know, but they don't know that each other knows, you know what I mean? Daredevil catches up with Spider-Man and coaxes an explanation out of the webhead with chili dogs. The TLDR version is that Peter is the clone, Ben Riley is the real Peter, for now. Both heroes become aware of somebody targeting them and avoid getting blasted by Image Comics reject the shooter. Guess what he does? Both dodges blasts and set him up to shoot a water tower, knocking the would-be bad guy out and ending the superhero team-up portion of the day. Later, Matt stops by the construction area where Rosalind Sharp's firm will be and accepts her offer, doing his best to set up boundaries, but ultimately failing. Rosalind welcomes Matt and even has his first assignment, defending a killer by the name of Mr. Hyde. And we wrap up the issue with the villain growling his demands to see his lawyer. To be continued. And with that, we will take a podcast promo break and then I'll be back to talk about the hijinks of Daredevil number 354. Image Comics, formed in 1992 by several creators unhappy with their current place in the industry. So they band together to make a new comics company for a new generation of readers. Creator-owned, mutants, cops, black ops government agents, demon-possessed, and they are going to be the greatest comics ever. In April of 1992, the first issues hit the stands, and fandom resounded with cries of... Pouches? Why are there so many pouches? pouches? What? You don't like pouches? All the Pouches, an Image Comics podcast, is one fan's exploration of those early years of Image Comics. Youngblood, The Savage Dragon, Spawn, and more, with maybe even a few pouches along the way. So come give a listen at johnreadscomics.com. That's John with no H. Just you can spell it right. 
Welcome back. We open the issue and we get this really great splash page of Daredevil swinging around New York and the crosshairs are overlaid on him. There's nothing new or different, but it's just a great composition. It looks beautiful and you get a real sense of danger that's always around the man without fear. I really wish I could get this as a pinup or man in my dreams original art. And we get a peek inside Matt's head and he's thinking that swinging around New York makes him realize it feels great to be alive and I can definitely see that. If there is a pure draw to being Daredevil, it's sort of the freedom of getting above New York and the clarity of seeing it from a different perspective, almost as a whole, or at least as a sectional whole, versus the small, confined spaces you're in in the city. And it's beautiful. I think it's a great idea. And I love the idea that Matt is really accepting of what's going on in his life. He's accepted his dual role. He's embraced it even. And he's just a slightly more driven person in a very positive way. And of course, we get back to the offices of Nelson and Murdoch. And Floggy comes into the office singing, Because you're a human supernova, a solar superman, which A, means that Foggy likes Liz Fair, which makes me like Foggy even more, because Liz Fair is one of my all-time greatest crushes. Oh, hot, 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 hot! And B, it also means that Kiesel has managed to slip in another Superman reference, and a subtle one. But going deeper on that, could Foggy's musical choices have to do with another Liz who's going to enter the picture in a few pages? Did Kiesel slip in some character nuance? Subconsciously, Foggy is thinking about Liz, so he listens to Liz Fair. I don't know if this is intentional or accidental, but it is very much there. A nice subtlety, and I appreciate it on another level. I mean, this is such good character work. For a subtle subplot that's coming along slowly, it is a nice niche that Kiesel has found for this, and I dig it so much. It's such a nice little character piece. But before we get to Liz Osborne, we get to Foggy kind of freaking out. He's just so new to knowing Matt's secret. He hasn't had time to really consider the extent of Matt's senses and sort of Matt's practiced way of controlling his surroundings. Matt kind of explains that he's pinpointed where the glare on the windows would be so nobody can see in. He's explored the space enough to know his way around and know what extent he can relax in it. And it strikes me as being true to an actual blind person in the real world. When coming into a new environment, they'll typically map it out to find any hazards and learn their way around. Like moving into a new apartment, here's the counter, here's the couch, so on and so forth. And this really strikes true to life. It's just that this is all so new to Foggy. And he really doesn't realize how much Matt technically sees with his radar sense and other senses. It's a learning curve is what it is, and that's okay. I'll give him some slack. But back to Liz Osborne, this is a nice little subplot that's coming along fairly slowly and very subtly. Once again, we're adopting a Spider-Man character into our Daredevil pantheon, because Liz is a longtime Marvel character going back to the Lee and Ditko days when she was Liz Allen. She was a high school classmate of Spider-Man and a potential love interest that never came to be. But she's a character that kept recurring. She ended up marrying Harry Osborne, who is the second Green Goblin, as everybody knows. No surprise there. So she's seen quite a bit of stuff because she's also the stepsister of the Spider-Man villain, the Molten Man. So she's a very ingrained character into the Spider-Man mythos. And I love that we're kind of getting the fluid Marvel Universe idea that these people live in the same city. Law of Averages says some of them should meet at some point. But up to this point, Foggy is, he's completely missing Liz's signals, which speaks to Foggy's self-consciousness. To him, Liz is out of his league. She could never be interested in Foggy Nelson, but she is. She's into him, and it's clear. She just happened to stop by and then ask him to lunch. It's a date, Foggy, and definitely you deserve all the happiness in the world because you are the sweetest dude on the planet. But moving forward, the art changes in the lunch scene with Matt and Karen to Rick Leonardi. It's a noticeable change, but not a bad thing. It's not jarring. It's not out of nowhere. 
but you know it's Rick Leonardi. You know it's not Carrie Nord, and I don't know if this was a scheduling issue or what have you, but Leonardi steps in and does some great work here. It also helps that this is a Spider-Man guest appearance, because Leonardi's a bit of a subject matter expert. His main claim to fame was that he was the primary artist on Spider-Man 2099, so he does come from the Spider-Man family. The dialogue in this scene is hilarious. Karen is suggesting deviled eggs. You know, come for the daredevil, stay for the dad jokes, but he goes with the chicken sandwich with avocado, pepper jack, and hollandaise, which sounds amazing. I want some broiled chicken. In fact, let's let's skip this whole record. No, okay, I'll, I'll keep recording and we'll get it later. But the joke just doesn't stop. It's the talk of food. We have devil's food cake, shrimp Diablo, and deviled eggs. And that makes me want to do a food-centric episode of this show. Maybe make some electric nachos or something like that. I don't know how that would translate, but it's a funny idea on paper. The crux of this scene is that Karen lies about her job search and Matt can hear it. Duh, Karen. Karen's no stranger to Matt's senses. She's not foggy learning her way around. She pretty well knows the extent of it. She's used to it by now, and yet she continues to lie to him right to his face? She's literally known the secret the longest of Daredevil's running characters. Matt even thinks to himself, did she think I wouldn't notice? I'm Daredevil, you know. But like Matt, the reader's wondering what she's hiding. And knowing Karen's past, there's a lot of things that come to the surface. The reader's most likely suspicion is that Karen is looking back into the porn industry. I want to be absolutely clear here, that's not where this is going at all. I want to put any thoughts of that to rest. And one thing I want to mention is that to Matt's credit, he doesn't call her out on it. He doesn't even throw any type of suspicion on the table, which would have been natural, not necessarily a good decision, but a natural decision. Hey, what if she's going down this road again? Maybe I should say something. But he trusts her. He's trusting in her recovery that she's been through for years and that she is not that person anymore. So kudos to Matt for giving Karen some credit and being a grown-up about this and letting her have her space. And then we get the best bit in the issue with Peter Parker, Ben Yurk, and Karen Page trying to cover for Matt when he takes off his Daredevil, which is, as he mentions later, the worst kept secret ever. And this kind of brings me back to something I talked about tangentially off the cuff last episode, but I want to concentrate on a little bit. Matt's secret and his penchant for keeping that secret, or in most cases not keeping it. Ben figured it out on his own. But Matt told Peter pretty freely during the aftermath of Gene DeWolf's death, and Karen's known for years because Matt told her. And last week I kind of made a haphazard comment that Matt tells his girlfriends, which is somewhat true. But I've been thinking about this for a little bit, and I'm glad the subject came up within the context of the issue, because that'd be awkward if it didn't. Matt kept his secret from his dad. Before there was a dual identity of Matt and Daredevil, he kept the idea of radar sense, etc. to himself. And maybe that's because he thought his dad wouldn't understand. That's what I thought on the surface. And surely his classmates wouldn't. He'd come off as a freak. And then we have our Stick and Maggie retcons. So for the most part, I kind of see, at least initially at the surface, why he wouldn't necessarily you know, really tell anybody because he can't explain it completely. But let's go into this. Once Matt has locked that vault and he's keeping a secret, what are the reasons he would share the secret? And I mentioned Karen and Heather Glenn. Heather caught Matt by accident, but Matt told Karen. Romantic partners make me think that he's putting it on the table and trying to make a connection and trying to be honest and open to some extent, as honest and open as Matt Murdock can be. And that's somewhat commendable. He's trying to make a real effort at a relationship from time to time. It fails almost inevitably, but he's trying as hard as he can, which kind of calls ahead to the uh, Mark Wade run. 
where Kirsten McDuffie pretty much knew the secret because it's the worst kept secret ever. And Matt kept pushing it away because he didn't want that relationship. But once the relationship was open, this was on the table. So there's a part of Matt that at least in romantic connections wants partners to come in and have their eyes open. This is a part of me. This is something you're going to have to deal with. Outside of that, when Matt told Spider-Man, he was trying to draw a superhero back from the edge. He's trying to make a connection because really Peter was out of his mind. And Peter was succumbing to his anger and about to make a decision that would be permanently regrettable and irrevocably destroy him. So we have honesty in relationships, which is good. And then we have Matt doing a Hail Mary when he tells Spider-Man. It tells me that he maybe underestimates somebody like Foggy. And he's not entirely wrong to do so. Look, you know I love Foggy. You know that bromance is a key to my Daredevil fandom. But look at the story guts that I covered a few episodes back. Foggy gets into the underworld, doesn't know when to pull back. Foggy isn't necessarily a liability to Matt on one level. He's a liability to himself. And please mark my word here that I say he's not a liability to Matt on one level. We're going to come back to that. But Foggy would want to go all in on the superhero thing uh, years earlier. If it was if the timing was different, he would have been trying to help Matt in any way possible, and he'd end up getting himself killed. Plus, Foggy had a life. He had gotten married. He was a good lawyer. Having the secret would be a burden to Foggy. So after a lot of thought, I kind of saw why Matt, on one level, wouldn't tell Foggy. On another level, we're going to come back to that. But let's talk about how he said he never told Jack. Jack stands out in a way that's different from Foggy. If you think about Foggy long enough, you kind of see why. To some extent, it's not entirely fair, but it's not entirely wrong either. But when talking about Jack Murdoch, you're talking about his father, somebody who dictated Matt's entire being. Jack has been a specter over Matt for a long, long time, when alive and also when dead. He's the entire motivation for Daredevil coming into being. When Matt made a promise to hit nothing but the books, that defined his childhood and led to solitude. It led to some very negative experiences with his peers. But he kept that promise because Jack dictated his whole life. Then Jack's drive pushed Matt after the accident, and then Jack started making decisions based on Matt's condition. Jack drove Matt, but Matt also drove Jack, and these two were very much inseparable. They defined each other. We have Stick as a mentor, but he was never more than a, at best, a proxy for Jack, looking for approval from a father figure, which he never got from Stick. So Matt isn't a superhero as a kid. He's just a kid with some weird abilities that he doesn't understand. He doesn't have villains who are out to get him that he should hide his identity. So coming back to this, why would he not tell Jack Murdoch what he can do? And it's because Matt didn't want to find out what Jack would do with that information. Not that Jack would be cruel, but Matt didn't want his dad to A, think he's a freak and think he didn't he'd just not understand him. That's terrifying. But he also didn't want Jack to make a stronger demand on him. Not a call to heroism or anything like that, but would he push Matt to protect himself even more with his abilities? Would he cocoon Matt from the world? Not so much coddling in him, but really keeping him isolated even more. Who knows what Jack would have driven Matt towards in that instance where he knew what Matt could do. Maybe there's another side to that coin as well, and these are all suppositions. I'm not going to commit to any one instance with Jack Murdoch because that is so nebulous. But maybe Matt being blind and Jack's doting and Jack's attention to that is what Matt wanted. He had a different relationship with his father after the accident, and telling Jack would have shattered that in a different way and pushed that who knows where. The third idea is after the retcon with Stick in there, if Stick had been discovered by Jack, Jack would have pulled the plug on that, and Matt would have pushed, and the relationship would have been strained, it would have been bad. So keeping the secret with Stick in the equation makes perfect sense. 
but Daredevil had been around for almost 20 years before Stick was even mentioned. So I'm kind of speaking from both the pre-Stick years and the post-Stick years. And with Stick in there, it's much more streamlined. With Stick not in there, it's much more interesting. Because Matt maybe being selfish and wanting Jack's attention pushed Jack into that ring to make that decision. It's a lot to think about, and I did a lot of it, but I don't necessarily want to weigh down the entire episode with this talk. But I do want to come back to Foggy, which is kind of the reason this whole thing got moving. And I mentioned Foggy would be a liability to himself, but I started thinking about this in comparison to what Matt would see with Jack Murdock and if the stick scenario was in play. Because if a father finds out his son is training with some ninja wizard dude, it's gotta go. As I mentioned, he's not necessarily a complete liability to Matt, but he is on another level a liability to Daredevil because this is causing a strain in the relationship. Luckily, the friendship is strong enough to get through this and cope, but there's a strain. And Foggy is Matt's BFF, his truest partner, the one person Matt cannot live without. But he's the ultimate liability for Daredevil because... And some of this has passed with just the tenure of Daredevil and the age of both Matt and Foggy, but at the early stages, Foggy knowing this, Foggy would have tried to pull the plug immediately. And the thing is, Foggy would have succeeded. It would have been rough, he would have pushed, it would have taken a while, but Foggy would have succeeded because Foggy is Matt's best friend. Foggy asks Matt will do it. Reluctantly? Yes. But Foggy would succeed where Karen didn't, and Matt would end up not being Daredevil anymore to protect his friendship with Foggy. Now, this would have been in the first five to six years. Matt's probably been Daredevil for, what, 15 at this point? So that liability has passed, but at that point, once that liability's passed, there's been enough time and enough lies that you can't just say, hey, I've been lying to you for most of our friendship. And when you think about the idea that Foggy is the one thing that could cause Matt to quit being Daredevil, it kind of makes sense that Daredevil is once again all about the self-preservation. It's a lot of maybe why he didn't tell Jack and a lot of why he didn't tell Foggy. And I felt kind of satisfied with that, that it's a flawed decision, but at the same time, it's actually a very logical decision. There are a lot of questions about Matt that I don't have answers to, but I feel like with this secret keeping, I kind of at least have enough ideas on the table that I can see it, I can justify it in story. But let's move on here. I'm weighed down a little bit too much time on the episode with that. We have a post-Clone Saga Spider-Man. And I know everybody gets the cold shivers when I mention the Clone Saga. And I'm not going to go too far into that. It's six months into this new paradigm post-Clone Saga where Ben Riley is Spider-Man, including the introduction of the book The Sensational Spider-Man. He's in this new Spider-Man costume, and it's a completely new paradigm. And Andrew Latham pointed out that there are good stories in this era. And I'd forgotten up until he said that, but I had actually a special place in my heart for Sensational Spider-Man. And if Marvel had stuck to their guns and said, no, this is this is the paradigm now and going forward, who knows what would have happened. But you're dealing with a decision that would be reversed by fear months down the line. And that fear-based decision nearly killed Spider-Man as a franchise. And I have a real soft spot that I've discovered for this version of Spider-Man, the costume, Ben Riley, because it was a weird time where I had to switch schools in the middle of my senior year. And that transition was a little bit rough. And the Ben Riley Spider-Man presented itself as a new beginning, a new jumping on point and a fresh start. And I kind of was able to glom onto that and look at the transition as similar as a new start, um, new me to some extent. It didn't really stick, but at the time, for the first few months, yeah, I got it. It was a new beginning. It was a similar paradigm, but a very different one at the same time. So the Spider-Man era, specifically sensational Spider-Man, kind of became symbolic to me and kind of became a little bit of a frame of reference. And likewise, this Daredevil run, the latter part of it, became a bit of a touchstone for me for several months. 
as I acclimated to the real world and got my act together and then finished everything out that I needed to as a young man. But enough poetry here. It's just, it was an interesting era. And I love that Daredevil is presented as being smart. He offers friendship and conversation, and that's always nice, but the chili dogs are the clincher. Spider-Man and Daredevil's friendship is so odd. On the surface, it does not seem to be very tight. To some extent, it's very contentious. But even in the Ben Riley version, I think the two of them are well aware enough of each other to know that there is a connection, that they have some similar elements, and that they really do, they push each other, but they really do complement each other as well. Not only do we not get the fight and team-up dynamic, the fact that it's absent is pointed out on the page. We've got meta-contextual dialogue that really pushes this into, oh, I feel really good about this. We're having a conversation between these two people like grown adults over chili dogs and catching up on the superhero business, I guess. If there's a trope that I have that is very, very odd, but very, very prevalent in my fandom, it's that I love professional camaraderie. For example, Jurassic Park, when Alan Grant and Ellie Sadler and Ian Malcolm are talking science and they're taking everything in, I thought that was great because these are professional scientists who are disseminating the information. For some reason, I love that idea. Competent people having competent conversations about something that's unknown and revealing that to the the viewer, the listener, whatever you are. I have a a weird fascination with that. Here we have Spider-Man and Daredevil doing that as well, having this grown-up conversation and then they're working together because we have the Spider-Sense and Radar-Sense catching the shooter at the same time in a very great image, by the way. Very sharp, great colors again. And I dig it that these two are equals. They're professionals to some extent, although they're not getting paid for the superhero bit, but you get the idea. They're tenured, they're experienced superheroes, and they're working together on that level as equals. And I dig that so much, it just catches me right in this weird spot in my fandom. And I just mentioned a great shot, but if I have an overall criticism of Kerry Nord's art, it's that in this run, he often repeats certain beats, specifically leaping from explosions. And we saw it last issue, we saw it twice in this one. The shots look almost identical, and it's hard to tell them apart. Not that it's a bad shot, it is visually arresting, but at the same time, you're kind of getting a bit of a chorus. Maybe that's the intention, which is kind of an interesting idea that Daredevil's always running from explosions and not looking back because he's a tough guy. But to me, it seems like an uh, easy composition for him and maybe an easy way for telling stories, which is fine. It just stands out to me. And then we have the shooter, who very much is a jab at Image Comics. I don't know if it's in any way, shape, or form a jab at Jim Shooter, because I don't know if Carl Kiesel ever worked with or for Jim Shooter, but it's definitely Image Comics. I mean, the shooter could get in the lineup with Overkill or any member of Youngblood and mix right in. I mean, it's pretty much just the 90s personified. And his motivation to make a name for himself by killing Daredevil, the hero who took down the Kingpin, is solid enough. Makes sense. Kind of the law of the jungle type of thing. But Daredevil makes a very solid case for killing Spider-Man. And at first, Spider-Man agrees. And then he realizes, wait, 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 wait. Slow your roll. And essentially, this fight is them playing with the guy, learning his limitations. And then they take him out with a solid bit of teamwork by shooting the water tower, and I love this. I love great buddy team-ups. Spider-Man tells him he's despicable, and Daredevil kind of tries on the adjective, the despicable Daredevil, which isn't too bad sounding. If I ever write a Daredevil comic, it will be called the despicable Daredevil. Daredevil correctly says that Spider-Man took all the good adjectives. Amazing, spectacular, sensational. Marketing needs a boost for Daredevil, guys. Get the despicable out there. There's also a great joke about spiders having eight lives, which, which Spider-Man corrects him as like eight legs. This is, this is great. This is like two bros crushing superhero banter. 
They're not getting deep within their souls or the agony that they live with every single day. They're just being superheroes and, to some extent, having fun with it. Let's get down to brass tacks here. Comics are entertainment. Yes, there are stories that could be told that are important in comics, and they are told, hopefully often. Yes, the characters mean something to us, and yes, you can go through many textures with a single character. But at the end of the day, comics are entertainment. They're here to entertain us. We're supposed to be enjoying this, which implies some degree of fun. This particular team-up didn't delve deep into the psyches of either hero, really. It didn't tear apart the clone saga. It didn't talk about Born Again or all these great stories that have destroyed these characters. No, it just kind of allowed the characters to be characters. The shooter isn't some sort of recurring villain that's going to be the new big bad. He's just a dude that got taken out by superheroes that are better than him. And my point in all this is saying you don't have to have a mega crossover involving eight different titles and a core book and then core books within that small miniseries. You don't have to have an event issue with somebody dying every month. All you have to do is tell a good, entertaining story and people theoretically will come to the book. At the end of the day, all we really want as comic fans are good stories, good art, and good characters. The rest is icing on the cake. Speaking of good art and good characters, we have Rosalind Sharp. And looking at her building, there's a establishing shot. And I've been all over Google Maps on this thing. It's an Art Deco building, probably in the Flatiron District of New York. And the word Mason is over the door. And I have not been able to pin down this location. It definitely looks photo referenced. It's not the Mason Hall. I'm not sure. I want to dig in a little bit deeper, but I'll put a pin here saying that I have not found this location yet. As much as I enjoyed the superhero bit of this issue, and I did, I'm actually more invested in the Rosalind Sharp angle at the moment. I love this conversation where Matt accepts her offer, but there's a lot of double meanings in their discussions. For example, Rosalind stands behind him and says, I'll always be right behind you, meaning that she'll be watching his back is what she implies, but she's also going to be watching over him and keeping him in check. This is such an awesome game of chess coming out in this. This is great character work. It's an intense tango, and I love every moment of this. Even when Matt accidentally, quote-unquote accidentally, hits her leg, it reminds her, maybe you'll want to stay out of my way in the future. The introduction of Rosalind Sharp is just so great to watch. She's like J.R. Ewing or Amanda Woodward from Melrose Place. She's a charming antagonist that you love to hate, and you will hate her. Bear that in mind. Once again, Kiesel is making the lawyer aspect of the book sing and doesn't really skimp on the superheroics. But when he gets to it, he smashes the two elements together like a freaking magician. There's sleight of hand. Mr. Hyde. The fight last issue seemed like a one-off and got tucked in the background, and now the superhero has to defend the villain. Get me the next issue ASAP. This is compelling. I'm already um, I'm, I'm committed. I mean, I was going to be committed anyway because I'm doing the show, but if this was the real world and I'd been reading this in real time, get me the next one now. Let's bring this into the final verdict. I've made some of these points, but I'm going to put it all on the table. This is not a complicated issue, but it is an enjoyable comic. It reads somewhat briskly, but I don't feel cheated because I had fun. It's entertaining. It's why we read comics. It's great to see a simple, old-school Marvel team-up or Marvel 2-in-1 type of story, and it manages to streamline the post-clone saga Spider-Man enough to not weigh down the issue, which in and of itself is a feat. To beat the dead horse, the Rosalind Sharp angle really sells it. You can lean on the lawyer aspect, lean on the superhero aspect. It's hard to balance both, but Kiesel is about to get to a beautiful balancing point. The overall arc is allowed to breathe under these one-off A stories, letting Kiesel reveal his fulcrum point of Mr. Hyde in the bridge between the aspects here. 
and Foggy is being used and being used well. They're building a romance, the strained friendship with Matt, Rosalind's trump card. He's actually integrated extremely well into the story. Karen is also used fairly well, but for her, it's more of a boiling pot. Both are, but she's a more noticeable boiling pot. But we have threads running for both of these without rushing them, and Kiesel manages to plant and water them and keep the reader invested in them without really revealing his hand just yet. I'm so glad that these issues will stand up to my memory. I was terrified when I opened them that they would not, but so far they have been fantastic, and it would have been devastating if they'd been a weak sauce issue one scrutinized. But with bits like uh, the Liz Fair angle, the superhero aspect, I'm, I'm definitely all in, which means that we have to read another one. Next time, we're going to do just that. We're picking up with the next issue with the mystery of Mr. Hyde deepening, and Daredevil needs to be careful or he'll get burned by the mutant villain Pyro. That is in one week from today. Between now and then, be excellent to each other. Party on, and remember that justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel Comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. This show earns no money and exists for entertainment purposes only. Hear his name. Hell, devil, fight for what is right.